0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer this week it's a conversation about research advances in gastrointestinal cancers with dr nita ahuja dr ahuja is the chair of the department of surgery at yale school of medicine and chief of surgery at yale new haven hospital dr gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at yale and director of hematologic malignancies at smilo cancer hospital
1: I think in the interest of just full disclosure, the audience needs to know that I didn't just meet you last year when you came here, right?
2: That's true. We've known each other for a long time. Because
1: we were colleagues at Johns Hopkins.
2: You, exactly. You know, so it's, I, it's a small world in academic medicine.
1: It is. And I was so delighted to hear that you were the selection for the chair of surgery. How did that come about? I mean, you were, you were pretty well established at Hopkins and everyone loved you there. What, what brought you up here to New Haven?
2: Well, uh, you know, um, all great places are alike with colleagues and good friends. And um, as you said, we you came here, uh, <laughs> and something drew you here. The same thing drew me here. It's it's the chance to be around good people. Um, you see that here. Um, certainly, talking to you and hearing about what was happening here, and I think just thinking about where we are going in healthcare and what I could do in this new position and. As helping our patients, you know, it's an opportunity, and this is a great institution, and that drew me here.
1: Yeah, well, we're so happy that that's the case. So, uh, but and you're still doing your research, is is that right? And I'm sure you've had to downsize it a little bit because you've got so many administrative responsibilities. You know,
2: it takes a while. You think you're, you know, I think being a surgeon, I'm always have this very optimistic timetable of my life, but it takes a while. But Um, Research is what keeps me very grounded about my patients. Um, As you take on these administrative roles, you you become more sort of your day-to-day becomes more big picture. And you have to come back as to why you became a surgeon or a doctor in the first place. And that, for me, is operating room and research. Those are the two places that connect me back to why... I became a cancer surgeon.
1: Well, I have to say that back in the day, I was always impressed that you could actually have a very high profile laboratory projects when you were always wearing scrubs. I mean, it was clear that you had just come out of the <laughs> OR and that you were presenting data that was very impressive. And, and as I recall, uh, your interest really was in this wackadoodle uh, field that you and I were both involved in called epigenetics. Is, isn't that right?
2: That's true. And it is, you know, um, I'll tell you when when I was a surgical resident in training, I said, what is this thing called epigenetics? We'd all learned about genetics, right? That's our DNA code. And we all sort of marveled at it and said, if I crack the DNA code, we'll have all the answers. They
1: teach it in middle school now. Right,
2: right. Mm-hmm. But clearly, we knew that wasn't enough. And I in epigenetics is really um, what I think of as um, being a surgeon and trying to put sort of big sort of connections together, we are all born with the same DNA, and yet we have sort of differences, and that reflects what we eat, what the environment, and that gives some of the problems we see later on in life with diseases, which is in my case that I study, cancer or other diseases, and that's reflects, um, as you know, epigenetics, and when i first heard about it i said aha it makes sense that's how the environment talks to our dna right and that's how i connected it. it's the environment and our other stuff talking to us and giving us what we become as we get older
1: one of the things which i've always found is a really good metaphor uh, or illustration of epigenetics is how the the caterpillar has the same dna as the butterfly exactly. and yet somehow that same dna <laughs> causes two very different uh, yeah, features, right? Mm-hmm. So it's features, right. And
2: and in you know, it, the you know, everything happens in our lives for sort of our body is a marvelous sort of piece of work. And if you think about it, I operate on the GI tract. Well it's the same DNA as our heart, yet it it's very different, it looks very dif- different, it has different functions. So epigenetics had a has a purpose in, in how we become human beings. And then, of course, we look at the other side of epigenetics, which you and I have studied, what happens in cancer. How Mm -hmm. does cancer use epigenetics to do what all the havoc and damage it does to our patients? And that's what I think you and I have been trying to figure out for the last two decades as to how to... Understand what it does in cancer, and then how do we then use that knowledge to help our patients?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's certainly uh, it's certainly such a compelling topic, and I think the more we learn, the more complicated it gets, and sometimes I, I find it pretty daunting. What's what's new in in GI cancers? I mean, uh, when you operate, you're you're doing colon as well as pancreas, like all aspects of the GI tract? Or is there one little little area that you like the best?
2: (laughs) Well, it's becoming more and more narrower as you go along. And, And as I think you just said, the more you know, the more you realize what you don't know. Totally. And that becomes as part of our lives in that you become really experts at certain pieces. So it's really um, I focus a lot on pancreatic cancer um, and um, because partly because recognizing that it is going to become such a big um, part of what um, happens in, to humans. It's going to become the second leading cause of cancer death in a few years.
1: Were, because so many people, unfortunately, don't survive it, you mean.
2: Yep. And, and it's not that it, the numbers are increasing. It's because in other cancers we're making progress, and we haven't made progress in this. And you just like to knock your head against the wall. Kind of. I'm stubborn that way, right? And, and as you are, because we want to fix something, and you're like, well, here's this unveil the problem. And yes, we figured out the surgery part. Um, You know, um, I've spent most of my training, I spent 10 years of training after medical school to become a cancer surgeon. And then the last 15 years, I've been, you know, perfecting the techniques. And you've perfected that. But as you just said, Steve, we still see that the patients are not doing living much longer. So we've got to think, what can we bring to it by what we know about genetics and epigenetics, and how do we take it so our patients are living longer? So it's it's a problem, and I like problems, and the harder they are, the more <laughs> challenging, and, and the more we can sort of say, okay, let's tackle this. So I th- I think it's it's one part of why I did this, you know, and saying, and then of course the surgery is technically sort of. Um, challenging. Very which,
1: difficult surgery, right?
2: pancreas surgery. Right. Takes so, all day, right? I mean, it takes so, so several well, hours. At least that's what I used to be. It, I told you we had, we had learned something of the technical part. So it takes lo- shorter time. It's not seven hours. It's maybe now five hours. Oh, I was
1: going to guess 12. <laughs> no, it's,
2: it's, it's better. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's still a difficult operation. And, um, and it's an operation where you really sort of see the human body and all of, in all its glory, It's you've got the blood supplies. You've got this beautiful organ that's really small, the pancreas. It's only about six inches big, but it controls, you know, it makes us diabetic if it's not working well. Mm-hmm. It causes havoc um, if it gets flared up, and then it causes this cancer piece. But yet we need it to live every well, day. Well, right, otherwise right? we
1: can't digest our food. Exactly. And it's stuck there in the middle of all these other important organs.
2: Yes. And I say it's, you know, as as in real, st- it's all about location, location, <laughs> location. And I tell my patients the pancreas sits in prime real estate, uh, surrounded by everything, right? It's surrounded by the liver and its drainage around all the important blood vessels and around our stomach. So it's wrapped and it's sitting. So it is this marvelous piece that you see the human anatomy and then you really sort of put the pieces back together after you take the cancer out
1: but that's one of the reasons why many of the patients who develop pancreas cancer can't be operated can't be operated on right because oftentimes as i remember uh, if it's not at a particular part of the pancreas you may not find out about it until it's past the point of surgical benefit uh,
2: and, and and so the Question of why have we, you know, if you look at breast cancer or colon cancer, we can pick it up early. We have even ways of finding these cancers early. But pancreas, the biggest problem has been finding it really early stage. And that's partly because it can hide in there unless it's, you know, near and like the bile duct which is the liver organ and you get jaundice but that's really happens Steph. and most of the times you know 70% of the patients the cancer is found too late and mm. then we're just looking at you know how can we use chemotherapy or other things to extend life, but we really can't take it out Mm because it's already spread.
1: And it's so interesting because the people who come in with a bad case of jaundice, they look so sick. But in fact, in in some ways, it's a good sign, right? Because maybe their pancreas cancer, if there's lots of causes of jaundice, obviously. But I mean, for those patients with jaundice where we find out they have pancreas cancer, that's really a good thing.
2: Well, it's the ultimate (laughs) glasses half full, right? It's like, well, you know, here we found it early, but it's still pancreas cancer. Yes, you can find it early, and and then you at least have an opportunity or a chance to go at it surgically. The one thing we do do know, and this is a lesson you learn again and again in every cancer, right, that if you find the cancer early, then you can improve survival, and we know that in other diseases. So that's one of the pieces of why pancreatic cancer, because all of our dream is to find it early. So then we can take it out and hopefully extend and give people that sort of longer survival.
1: So is there any progress being made at early detection for pancreas cancer?
2: Well, as you mentioned, you know, the organ is small at height. So imaging or the CAT scans and all those really don't find this cancer. So people are starting to connect. You know, how can science help us? Can we use genetics and epigenetics to find these cancers? And that's what many of the laboratories are now really trying to do. Can we find that needle in a haystack and find those people who are at high risk and find them early?
1: Would that be through a blood test? or?
2: Well, I think it. hopefully that could be a liquid biopsy, what we call liquid biopsy, these blood tests. And this comes back to, you know, going and um, biopsying the pancreas is not something you want to do. If you do a colon cancer, we do colonoscopy. We tell you age 50, go do your colonoscopy because we can. I've had two. Well, good, right? And we want to remind all your viewers that if they're 50 and they should be.
1: I had my first one at 50 in a week and the next one at 60 in a month
2: or something. There you go. That's perfect, right? And I felt so
1: good when I knew they were okay.
2: Right. And and we should be encouraging all our friends. But unfortunately, the pancreas, there's no scope. You can go do it. It's pretty Mm. hard to do those scopes. So the hope is that a liquid biopsy will allow us to find those people who are more at higher risk, and then we can come back with these fancy scopes to kind of do the next step.
1: Mm-hmm. But this is not prime time yet.
2: It's not prime time. I know many, you know, my lab is doing this and other labs are trying to find a liquid biopsy solution. And certainly we have some um, interesting targets. But as you know from your own research, that it takes a long time from something that seems promising in the lab to then take it to a test on the market. hmm you know, and, and, you know, right now we have a test for colon cancer. And my, before I got into pancreas cancer, we were trying to develop a test for colon cancer and it took a good 20 years. And that's an epigenetic test Mm -hmm. using your stool DNA. So that's the kind of hope that in the next decade we'll have a liquid biopsy for patients to sort of figure out who are the ones who are going to be at higher risk and perhaps find that cancer early or even really the great, success would be right before it becomes cancer.
1: Right. Well, the stool test that you mentioned for uh, to detect uh, colon cancer early, uh, one of our colleagues uh, did the show with me a little while ago, and, and the, the take-home I got from that was it's still preferred to do colonoscopy. Is that your thought as well, or, or is the stool test really pretty good?
2: Well, um, it depends what you're trying to do. As, as you and I both know, that 50% of patients still don't get a colonoscopy, right? So yes, colonoscopy is preferred because you can not only see the problem, but you could take it out. Mm-hmm. So it's not only diagnostic, that means we can diagnose that polyp, that will become a cancer, but it's therapeutic because you can remove the polyp. Yeah, that sounds and you great. Remove. So that sounds great, one test and you do both. But here's the problem, you know, you have to do a, the prep and many people don't like doing it and many people don't like taking a day off from work. So if we can get some more people and everybody to start doing some tests, you know, the other 50% who never comes to colonoscopy, if they'll do the stool test, that's better.
1: Got it. Well, this is uh, very exciting stuff, uh, Nita. Right now we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about advances in gastrointestinal cancers with Dr. Nita Ahuja.
0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about head and neck cancers. Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers, and in many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Nita Hujan. We've been discussing gastrointestinal cancer research advances. Nita, you know, we've talked a little bit about epigenetics and how it really takes – involves, I guess, translating the DNA code to different kinds of cells and when it goes awry – it can help make a, cancer, uh, a cell cancerous, for example. And certainly, uh, I know uh, in, in my field of leukemia, we have a couple approved drugs that we would at least, we know in the laboratory, they work through epigenetic ways, whether that's true clinically or not. I think we're still not sure after 20 years of research. So have any epigenetic kind of drugs or treatments proven promising in any of the cancers you treat?
2: So you know your field actually has a few drugs that have been yeah. that act epigenetically, um, and have shown some benefit. Um, and whether you know, and then the next part is how they work. But you know, in 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 sort of more common cancers such as the solid tumors, um, which being colon cancer, which is very common. Yeah, these drugs have been tested in the laboratory, and of course they show they seem to work in the laboratory, but then. Of course, as you and I both know, when we take it to clinical trials, that becomes challenging. And that is multitude of reasons. We come in at very advanced stages of patients, and these drugs have to work quickly to show some benefit. These drugs still are very old compounds that we're bringing out, and the newer generation drugs are just being tested, mm-hmm. often in the liquid tumors that you work on. So clearly, um, you know, we've been—I've been working in this um, big consortium, the Stand Up To Cancer network, for the last seven or eight years, in trying to see how can we take these epigenetic compounds and use them for these solid cancers like colon cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer. And clearly, we're still learning. Um, We know we can use these drugs in solid tumors. And occasionally, you'll even see some patients who respond, but it's not a home run. Mm. We know that clearly, these are not home run. And by using them by themselves, these drugs, as I mentioned, have a very short window of action in the body. They get rapidly sort of removed from the body. So how long do they last? We know may not be. And as we use them in stronger doses, they have lots of effects, and then you can't use them. Mm. So there's a little bit of sort of, you know, the technology has to catch up. And I know many companies are working at it. Hopefully, those better drugs are coming and will sort of continue on. But in the current time, the other part that has changed is our understanding of how we use these precision targets, you know, if we say that one, the drugs should become more precise, and then the second part is you still need to combine them with maybe our more traditional drugs we've used, like chemotherapy. Colon cancer, as you know, Steve, by the time we do clinical trials, these patients have a lot of disease burden, Yeah, and these epigenetic compounds are acting on a much slower timeline, so then to say, okay, use a slower timeline with a drug, with a disease that's growing, log fold and really rapidly growing. So you really, our thinking has gone that we really need to kind of combine these slower acting drugs with something that could come in and kind of a two punch, you know, the first punch. One, of two. Mm-hmm. One, two punch. So use your chemotherapeutic drug along with this epigenetic drug. So the stand up has just finished a trial in colon cancer. I think we just finished the last patient accrual on chemo resistance as We know that in colon cancer, which is a very common cancer, we've got some drugs that have shown really nice responses, but unfortunately, patients develop resistance to these chemotherapeutic drugs. And what we're trying to see is, can we make that cancer sensitive again to these compounds? So so these using these epigenetic compounds to what we call reprogram the cancer cells to make them sensitive again to these. Can we take the drugs we got and use them for a longer time? So that trial is continuing right now and we'll see what that shows. Hopefully, in the next couple of years, we'll have an answer or in next year, I hope. And then alongside the other exciting pieces, taking—and there was some nice data on one of our big cancer research meetings recently—can we take solid tumors that are where the immune system is very cold. You know, one of the nicest successes has been is in immunotherapy in lung cancer, where we can now use immune therapies and really show these remarkable responses— But only a few people have those remarkable responses. Majority of the cancers we deal with the immune drugs don't work. So we're now saying can we use these epigenetic compounds to wake up the immune system and do a two-one-two one 2 punch there.
1: And you're doing that in some of the GI cancers? Some
2: of the GI cancers, more in like pancreas cancer and these um, liver tract cancer, biliary cancers oh, called wow. cholangiocarcinomas. Those
1: are really tough too. Those
2: are tough cancers and also do poorly. And mm-hmm. it seems our data from the lab and from other groups suggests that they may be, may be more sensitive as a group. So those are some of the more sort of um, short-term things we're hoping we can take this and learn from them. Mm-hmm. And if that shows something, then and it's really back to that bench to the bedside, right? You do the clinical trial, you get samples, you learn more, and you go to the next trial until you get the home runs like we're seeing now in lung cancer and melanoma.
1: Well, I remember back in the day, not so long ago, at our old place in Baltimore um, there was a, a couple of anecdotal cases of lung cancer that got this kind of treatment, and and then they got some immune treatments, and it was really spectacular responses that didn't seem like it could just be one or the other. Have you had any on these new trials? You know, something like that will keep you going and motivated for some time when you see somebody do so well. Do you we, have any have any of those kind of glimmers coming through?
2: They are. So the colon trial I mentioned, the chemo resistance trial, we did a first initial trial which is. Called the phase one, right. which for your audience is really where you test a new compound and make sure it's safe. Yeah. And we had a spectacular responses in that initial trial and then have just finished the larger trial to see if what we are seeing is going to hold up.
1: Right. But there was there was enough that you saw that made you think, wow, th- this could really be a ticket for some patients anyway. For some
2: patients. And the same in, in the immune drugs, as you mentioned, we had seen this is what comes out of being in places, you know, where you sort of all these groups are working together and say, aha, I have an aha moment. Is mm-hmm. Can that be a really... A, Taking thing. Is this the real next big deal? And we noticed that in our lung cancer patients, right? They were on immunotherapy and they had these long responses in these, what we call durable responses where people were living five yeah. or seven years. And in April, I was at ACR, which is the big cancer big research cancer meeting. Mm-hmm. And they were presenting a trial on, again, on now on um, melanoma on these durable responses with epigenetic compounds with um, not our group but another group that was showing this. That's so. the
1: the formerly really bad kind of skin cancer. Exactly. Which sometimes is doing very well now. But
2: now we're seeing that yes the immune therapy works but if you combine it in this one two punch maybe it'll work even better and really people can just have these long long responses. So again still too early for us to say hey this is the next big thing but it's certainly these aha moments that are making us, keeping us all interested in this arena.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, we've recently done a show uh, about this new immune therapy that uses T-cells that they call CAR-T. And one of my our colleagues here was describing a research trial where they're using Antibodies with these CAR Ts to even attack things like stomach cancer and mm-hmm. breast cancer. Anything coming down that way in pancreas or colon that you know of?
2: Not in pancreas, as you know. This is probably the toughest, toughest. Well, that's cancer. why I'm that's why I'm
1: grasping. <laughs> I'm reaching out there.
2: I know, and and as you know, many many groups have tried to tackle it, and 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 I think you know, pancreas cancer almost sits in this immune privileged area mm. and it is a tough tough
1: can't get the immune cells in there. can't
2: get the immune cells in as you know this has a very sort of strong what we call a desmoplastic reaction around it
1: that means like really scar a lot tissue. of scar tissue yeah. is the
2: easy way to say it so I I do think it's not where we are seeing but gastric cancer or, or stomach cancer is something that is now you know we used to kind of say maybe even not the so long old days but even five years ago saying, you know, hey, stomach cancer is a bad cancer, but now we're starting Getting to better. learn so much yeah. about it. So it is. It's a nice it's a good time to be in science and and being in this area. We're seeing lots of our old assumptions changing.
1: That's great. So so here you are, clearly st- Ever as enthusiastic about the progress and your surgery and all that. And now you're running a department, so now you've got, like, all these kids, right? You know, or colleagues who are your kids, right? So how, how does that feel? I mean, because all of a sudden sort of anybody's, I would imagine anybody's success sort of reflects on you just like one's kids reflect on the parents. I mean, is that how it feels to you? or? Oh,
2: it absolutely does. But it's such a special feeling, right? Just imagine when you, your child toddles for the first oh, time yeah. and then they run. And that's like watching your faculty in your department. The first time they make something and then they give in the big award or they figure out a new treatment and they do a robotic valve surgery for heart. And you're just so excited for them. Because at the end of the day, you and I both know that if you're going to sort of do things, everyone should be around you should be doing this. It's the teams that kind of put all the pieces and you can only do something in your particular area. But what you want to do is get that enthusiasm around your department about what science has to offer, what our patients can teach us, what are the next big things in quality. And I think that is truly just so powerful and so engaging that I truly love that piece of my life better than my own research sometimes.
1: You know, I feel the same way. And, you know, just from a sort of legacy perspective, if you will, you know, I'm going to retire one of these days, not anytime very soon, but one of these (laughs) days I think I'd like to do that. And, um, you know, and and so uh, I find that, you know, what I develop or hope to imbue into Trainees and junior faculty and students, I mean, they're going to carry on. I, I think about our former colleague, yours and mine, uh, Dr. Walsh, who basically invented the modern prostatectomy, mm-hmm. right, down at Hopkins. There was a long time when he was the only one in the world who could do it the right way. And how many surgeons are doing these wonderful prostatectomies for prostate cancer patients around the world now? Huge numbers, right?
2: And I, I think you just put your finger on what, what we do in healthcare. Healthcare touches all of us, It we will all need it. And one of the things as you start to get, you know, sort of say, shall we say, more experienced and you start to see retirement, (laughs) you want to make sure that the next generation has that same desire to figure these big problems, you know, whatever the next problem will be, that someone's going to be excited about tackling it, that the surgeons, the physicians, the clinicians are going to not only do what they do every day, but think about the big problems.
0: Nice. And you
2: want to pass that sort of love for knowledge and connecting. And because most of us wake up with this, you know, it's not like someone says, you got to do this, we do it because we worry about this. And we do it because someone invested in us and was kind of put the spark. And now you're trying to get that spark in your students, in your faculty, in your in the, in the nurses around you in your team. So I think that and I think this is something we all have seen in our mentors. And as you get to that age saying, OK, I'm seeing that I may need some of this care, you really want to pass it on. So who was
1: that person or persons for you? Who, who really put this, made you think, wow, I'd like to be like that or I could do something like that or if only I could do well, is there one or two people like that for you?
2: You know, it it often is. It's how funny. How why did I become a surgeon? Yeah, why did you? It, there were no surgeons. I went to medical school at Duke University at a time when there were no women surgeons in that department. And
1: well, there weren't many women surgeons. They were
2: not anyway, right? anywhere, it- at that time, but there were none. There was no role model. And I was thinking back about this recently, and it was a the chief of OBGYN, was a surgeon who just took me under his wing, and he was just a big picture thinker. Mm. And he was kind to me. He thought I could do this. And that belief and then confidence really made me believe I could do surgery. And then it was a breast cancer surgeon who had a lab. At Duke University made you do one year as part of medical school in the research laboratory. Mm. And, you know, I often pick things with people who were nice, and this guy was a nice surgeon. Amazing. It it was, he was, you know, it's like, you know, there was still a lot of surgeons have to be mean and we were all afraid of surgery and Dirk Eichelhart was a breast surgeon. So I had to, my family is not physicians. My mom is a teacher. My dad is an accountant and I didn't know anything about medicine. I was this wide eyed kid at Duke and they said, go pick a lab. And I'm like, well, I heard this guy seemed like a nice person. He gave a talk on breast cancer and how vitamin A, retinoids, vitamin A can change these breasts. I was just hooked. I was like starstruck. And I said, oh, he's a nice person and he's doing this cool stuff. So I went and worked in his lab and it just kind of connected the pieces.
0: Dr. Nita Uhuja is the chair of the Department of Surgery at Yale School of Medicine and Chief of Surgery at Yale New Haven Hospital. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.